0: Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda.
1: This week on The Agenda, an unfolding food crisis with rising populations and resources running out. How can technology help feed the world? Around the world, almost one in 10 people don't have enough food to eat. That's about 811 million people. 3.1 3.1 billion people can't afford a healthy, nutritious diet. Climate shocks play a huge part in exacerbating world hunger. Heat waves, droughts and flooding destroy crops and livelihoods. The economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic worsened problems already there. And wars aggravate food insecurity. The conflict in Ukraine has caused massive price and supply volatility globally. Food prices surged in February and March, driven by fears that the wheat and vegetable oils largely exported from Ukraine would be disrupted by war. Analysts are concerned, too, about the price of rice, the cornerstone of diets across Asia. The cost of grain, cereals and oils around the world has since stabilized, but the impact, whether or not a country depends on imports from Ukraine and Russia, has been stark. Inflation in Turkey has surged to more than 80%. A loaf of bread in Bulgaria cost nearly double in June, what it did a year earlier. Sugar in Poland is up 40%. And those rising prices for basic food staples is fueling protests from Indonesia to Iran. Farmers in Buenos Aires, Turkey and Cyprus, students in Chile, workers in Greece and activists in Kenya are all demonstrating against soaring living costs. While the effect of Covid, climate change and wars are compounding the number of people facing food insecurity, do we need to rethink the food system to feed the world? Let's talk to Eric Fearwald, CEO of the Sygenta Group, one of the world's largest agritech companies, and to Joao Campari, the leader of the World Wildlife Fund's global food programme. Gentlemen, thank you both for for joining us. Um, I'll start with you, Eric. I mean, now that the global population has hit that 8 billion milestone, feeding the world has never become more important, has it?
2: Correct. And it's never become more challenging either with these weather extremes that are causing massive droughts, the worst droughts in history in in Europe and southwest China last year and Australia before that, Argentina, while at the same time we're seeing massive flooding in countries like Pakistan. So these weather extremes are making farming more difficult and with the conflict in Ukraine adding more pressure to food security. So it's never been more important than, than today to improve the productivity and the sustainability of agriculture.
1: But Joel, food systems thinking it is still quite new, isn't it? In, certainly in terms of the global high level negotiating um, stage. So why is that and why aren't things moving faster?
3: We can't phase out food like we can phase out fossil fuels when we're talking about climate change. Right. So solutions are much more complex and context specific than one might think. There is no silver bullet and no single solution. So this complexity means it's not a straightforward solution like halt uh, the use of, of coal. And we know this is pretty difficult to, for everybody to agree on. For, so food systems also employ over one billion people and are a major economic driver in many countries. So transformation could create short-term and medium-term disruptions in many places, though it's necessary for food security, not to mention climate and nature. So governments and businesses are slow to respond, in my view, to this need for systemic thinking around the food agenda because they're hanging on to what's worked so far for their poll results and for the bottom line. But the fact is that this is all has to change.
1: And so much is interconnected, isn't it, Eric? Eric? I mean, I wonder, do you think food is a real key ingredient then of um, the climate action
2: menu? Absolutely. Um, The agriculture food system contributes one third of the greenhouse gas emissions. So not only do we need to do better to feed the world, to feed the growing population, but we need to do it in a way that takes agriculture and the food system to zero carbon emissions. And that's what we're doing with something we're calling regenerative agriculture, a new way of of combining the best of organic, the best of conventional agriculture, and bringing new innovations, both product, digital, and agronomic advice innovations to enable farmers to grow more food on less land and do it in ways that capture carbon in the soil rather rather than releasing them to the air.
1: But Joel, food issues can be quite contentious, can't they? Uh, I mean, there are sensitivities around nutrition, around diets in different parts of the world, and, and then there are the costs r- related to, to more sustainable farming. Like, you know, how much is going to cost and then who should pay for it?
3: This is a great question. Uh, to which we don't have a great solution because there's not a one-size-fits-all solution for, for food systems approaches. So you're using a great example of diets. They're different all over the world, culturally different. They depend on what food grows in the local ecosystem and on people's states and cultural heritage, ultimately. So there are plenty of places where we need to halt overconsumption of animal-sourced foods, for example, mainly in the global north. But there are also places where people actually need to eat more meat and dairy because they live in fragile socioeconomic contexts, many times facing hunger, and animal proteins in this specific context are needed as part of a healthy and nutritious diet. So um, last month, for example, WWF launched a framework called the Great uh, a Framework called the Great Food Puzzle that helps national level decision makers identify what actions are most relevant in their countries so you know about the 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 costs that you mentioned on on uh, on food it will take if you think about the 1.8 trillion dollars uh, in subsidies that is spent each year uh, you know in some some of which are around 1 trillion is spent on agri food systems it's, it's quite a lot. So we need to repurpose these uh, agri-food support systems to reward farmers and fishers to do the right thing, to produce with nature and uh, farming with nature and not against nature.
1: You, you talk about this food puzzle about doing the right thing, but also that there's no one size fits all. And, and I wonder, Eric, what, what, what you think about this, you know, considering that food systems contribute about a third of greenhouse gas emissions and the vast majority of biodiversity loss you know will we ever be able to get that balance right we ever going to have a stable climate be able to feed people and save biodiversity
2: there's no choice we have to do this and it's not uh, syngenta's role it's not wwf's role it's all our roles together i have never seen such collaboration across the food system as i do today because of the urgency of both food security and climate change crises in fact i spend my time now not just with farmers and with with syngenta people but i spend a lot of time with with leaders of the nature conservancy of wwf and other ngos the united nations uh, farmer groups government ministries of agriculture whether it's in china the us or the eu We're all in this together. We all have to find ways to make sure that we support farmers to grow enough food, to grow more food with less land so that we can return more land to nature, to protect the farmlands that we have, protect the biodiversity there and enrich the soils, but make sure that there's enough food and that we take agriculture towards zero carbon emissions. And we're demonstrating that on pilot levels in many, many countries. We need to scale that up, and to do that, we need to do it together. The the food companies, the food retailers, supporting the agriculture companies, supporting the farmers, and then the NGOs and the governments all working together to make this happen. And yes, it's it's different solutions for different markets, for different types of soils, for different crops, but there are some best practices that we can learn that, that drive across this. Um, but we also have to bring that capability everywhere in the world to make it happen. And that's what we're committed to.
1: It's what you're committed to, but is that what's happening? I mean, Jar, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about COP27 and the COP15 biodiversity summit that we have at the end of 2022. Maybe they were missed opportunities, in which case, what would you like to see done differently um, to convince heads of states, I suppose, to show that willingness to change these systems in collaboration with organizations like yours?
3: I think we have two different scenarios here. One is on biodiversity. I've just come back from uh, Montreal. I was attending COP15 and the Kunming-Montreal agreement gives us real hope. It's a historic moment and gives us the opportunity to halt and reverse biodiversity loss uh, by 2030. So, you know, in my view, I thought that um, uh, COP15 did not deliver all that we at WWF wanted, but it really advanced the, the dialogues and the conversations and the commitments, you know, to reverse biodiversity loss by 2030. It's disappointing, though, that there isn't a commitment to reduce by half the footprint of uh, production and consumption by uh, 2030, which places a lot of responsibility on national level actors to go further uh, than what was agreed. So this is about COP15 and biodiversity. On climate uh, uh, COP27 in Egypt, it was definitely a missed opportunity to accelerate food-based climate action. There were five pavilions at COP27 led by many organizations claiming for food systems transformation. But these claims were not heard in the negotiations room, unfortunately. So, uh, but you know, this is not only about people who need to convince world re- leaders of doing different things or doing things differently in the food space. The science is clear that we must transform food systems. This needs to be done today. As Eric pointed out, there is no solution if we don't. So we need to come together. And I think COP15 was an example in which we came together to push forward in great strides for nature-positive and climate-neutral climate uh, food systems. Eric, I would just
2: one... like to add. Oh, go, on. go on, Eric. I, don't mind. Go on. I would just like to add that coming out of COP15, the Syngenta Modern Agriculture Platform Farmer Solution uh, Initiative in China was recognized uh, by the COP15 organization as, as an example, a best practice of protecting biodiversity in China. And at the same time, that, that MAP initiative that we put together, which by the way, involves many other companies and NGOs like the Nature Conservancy, the United Nations has supported it, has also been recognized for poverty alleviation. And by Nestle, where, where Nestle has compared wheat growers that weren't using the MAP system, which is a regenerative agriculture system, uh, to farmers that are using the MAP system, that the greenhouse gas emissions were reduced in half by 50% for these wheat growers. So there are examples out there of where this is happening, where this transformation is happening. We just need to work together to scale it dramatically.
1: Well, you partly answered the question I was going to ask you, Eric, uh, that it's all very well talking about it. But, you know, where Are we actually seeing progress um, being made? I wonder to what extent, though, you and companies like yours are waiting for a roadmap from from lawmakers um, or whether it really is going to be a case of you taking the initiative um, and becoming productively greener.
2: We are absolutely taking the initiative. And if you look at the websites of Walmart, Nestle, Unilever, Kellogg's, uh, McCain Foods, many other food companies, they're all committing to sourcing from farmers that use regenerative agriculture practices that re- dramatically reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. And we at Syngenta, our, our competitors like Bayer and Cortiva and others and agriculture companies like ADM and Bunge, we're all working together. You know, Obviously we compete rigorously with our competitors for, for farmer business, but we're working across the food system to enable this regenerative approach to dramatically increase yields and reduce greenhouse gas emissions and protect biodiversity. So it's starting to happen, but we need to work more with governments and even more with NGOs to make sure that we're getting this everywhere in the world, that farmers, smallholder farmers in Africa are benefiting from this as well as large farmers in the United States and Canada and Brazil and and farmers in China all over the world are making this transformation to a more regenerative future where we both have enough food, and address climate change. It's so th- starting to happen, it needs to scale, and we need to all help make it scale.
1: So this is something that, that's happening now. It's something for our short to medium term, not some some, some long distance goal. I mean, Gerald, I, I, I'm wondering what, what you think should the changes be farmer led? Should there be techniques that that work with nature a shift away uh, from industrial agribusiness, or should we really be looking at technology-driven innovations?
3: Okay, like I mentioned before, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. So we need food producers, first and foremost, to adopt nature-positive production practices at scale.
1: Eric, I wonder if there's anything that, that you and me, that we can do as individuals um, to, to, to make a little small step change. Are there things that we can do, steps we can take as individuals, as organizations, to, to be part of the transformation?
2: One example I see as a, a, a leading example in the world of the future of food is happening in China. And with our, our modern agriculture platform, MAP Centers, we're connecting to food companies and all the way to consumers and on things like apples and oranges and grapes and, and rice products, there is a map based logo on the finished food product that consumers buy, and there's a QR code. And the consumer can scan the QR code, see a picture of the farmer, and then also see the sustainability data, how much less greenhouse gas emissions were emitted, how much less pesticide fertilizer were used, how much more sustainable their products were. Consumers love this, and they'll buy, they'll buy products that are more sustainable. So if we can use blockchain as we're using in China more globally to connect consumers to farmers and have consumers want and pick sustainably grown products, I think that's a great advancement that will have a huge impact because consumers want to protect the planet as do farmers and all of us, but let the consumers pick the foods that are protecting the planet.
1: Eric Fearwald and Raoul Campari, thank you both very much indeed.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Still to come here on the agenda: investing in innovation. Is advanced farming technology getting the financial backing it needs?
0: Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda.
1: Welcome back to The Agenda. Cutting edge innovation may be the only way to avoid an impending food crisis. And in the past few years, the agri-tech sector has certainly been growing fast, but is it getting the investment it needs to grow fast enough? Joining me now to help answer that and more is entrepreneur and venture capitalist, Simon Howarth, who specializes in sustainable agritech. Simon, thanks ever so much for, for coming on the agenda. Let's start with you putting on your investor hat. What was it about the world of agri-tech that you thought that's
0: a, a growth area for me. No, it's a, it's a good one. I, uh, I'm delighted to be able to chat to you guys. I actually started my first career in agriculture. So a uh, family farm, dairy farm up in Cheshire. And there were times when that was a difficult place to be. And I found that I was setting up a number of different companies. I set up a herb business when I was still at university. And that innovation and activity took me out of agriculture, actually, down to Cambridge, uh, set up the research, agricultural research division for Savills, but then ended up catching the bug in Cambridge biotechnology. And so I my life shifted over into biotech. In recent years, I've been brought back to agritech. We set up a uh, syndicate called Cambridge Agritech, following a call from NIAB in Cambridge to say, look, Simon, you've got investment experience. I hear you've got a distant past in agriculture. Can we look at how to look at agriculture innovation? So back in 2015, 16, 17, we set up Cambridge Agritech syndicate of local landowners and food guys. And that's one of the five or six early stage fund investment activities that's been successful. And now, We're getting to the stage where we need the follow-on funding. We need the growth capital to follow on from those early stage startups. And so I've now come back to start that up now, focused 100% as of the 1st of January this year on uh, Agritech investment.
1: So when you go out to your, your pitch meetings, when you, when you talk to other investors and you're trying to mobilise all of that, I mean, what are the things that are saying, look, this is urgent, this isn't just a, a, a passing fad, this is hot right now. I mean, is it the war in the Ukraine that's increased the conversation because of the various crises that has accelerated?
0: Well, it's a very trite suggestion, but we always say that uh, Vladimir Putin is our head of marketing. <laughs> the, the reason for that is it has brought to people's absolute attention this critical factor of food security. And Agritech has really come to the fore. So you might say, look, in these rather more troubled, perhaps even recessionary times, are investors going to look at this? And what you've got in the market at the moment is there's a bunch of investors interested in ESG, interested in more uh, impact investing. They've been disappointed, shall we say, by some of the the greenwashing that they've seen. Agritech is top dead center. It's the most obvious place where ESG investing can be brought to, to bear. Agriculture itself has some issues, but for the investors as a whole, despite the recessionary circumstance, we are getting investors coming to Agritech that have not previously invested in the space, And to be honest, we hadn't expected to come to the fund. So the moment is absolute and everybody, I think, has come to realise just how important this is right now.
1: You say the moment's absolute. I think you've you've talked about Agritech as being the the new revolution. um, And it's going to do more for for human health than biotech. And I I think also that you think China is quite pivotal here, a, a really important and growing market. So why do you think that?
0: Yeah, these are two very important points. As far as China is concerned, the uh, demands of a population are really important. We had the Oxford Farming Conference this last week, and um, uh, Sir Charles Godfrey from the, uh, he's a professor of Population Biology, Oxford Martin School, was presenting details of population growth. And actually, the analysis suggests that we have reached peak children in terms of uh, children, if not peak population. By 2050, we need to increase food production by 30 to 60%, but most of that is about uh, wealthy countries and individuals changing their eating habits rather than volume of of food. So there's a total change uh, taking place And China is one of those growth population areas where there's going to be greatest demand. So we're expecting that all the investments we make here in Europe and in the US and Canada will actually develop a significant revenue stream from engagement with China. Uh, So that's certainly a a very important market. Now, I've come from the fields of biotech and we've done great things in that area. But of course, biotech focuses on a special group of people in the population who are unhealthy. Agritech focuses on the uh, population as a whole. And there is a massive opportunity to address food as, a, as an issue for Agritech to in, to increase the supply of food and the appropriate food. But there's also other elements within Agritech. So you've got the concept of nutraceuticals which link in with uh, health and well-being and we have extraordinary demand for new technologies in uh, in food and in human health but the the basic fact is that agritech has been underinvested and so the opportunity for change is really significant.
1: There is a lot of buzz around the industry, there are lots of niche organisations, some at the startup stage, some that are looking for that further investment. So what do you think it's going to take for these small UK companies, quite nimble, to, to pivot and to look towards China where you say the most growth is going to be?
0: Well there's, a, there's actually an interesting problem in this which is more to do with human capital than financial capital. In the US and elsewhere there's a reasonable supply of what we call growth capital. So the investors that come in once a uh, company has started producing 200,000 pounds of revenue, a million quid's worth of revenue in the UK and to a great degree Europe also, there is very little growth capital, and we see that as a as a uh, market failure, if you like, talking in government terms, a market hindrance. And so what we're doing is putting together a growth capital fund to take companies to the next stage, the scale-up stage. And it's at the scale-up stage where we're going to be doing M&A and we're going to be bringing in uh, leadership that has knowledge of expansion. And that's the stage where we take uh, companies to China. We we have an incredibly fortunate long link with China. And I really look forward to bringing some of these agricultural, uh, agritech innovations over to, uh, to China.
1: Simon Howarth. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up soon on the Agenda, could we live better with less? How shrinking our economies rather than growing them could be the key to prosperity. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.